Okay, good. Turn with me in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1. We'll be looking at just a few verses today, verses 21 to 23. I do encourage you to have your Bibles out. We're just going to follow the text uh, in this sermon. The Son of God, which is who Paul is talking about, last week we saw that in him and through him and to him were all things, both in the present creation and in the new creation. This Son of God is holy. He is blameless. He has never committed any evil. Sometimes that is described that he is full of light, and in him is no darkness at all. He is also described as a blazing fire, consuming fire. And that is why the thought of being brought into his presence should at the same time frighten you and exhilarate you. We are anything but holy, blameless, and above reproach. Our innocence and our purity have been lost. They have been replaced with the scars of this fallen world. Now, I have never really enjoyed Shakespeare. That's a confession. I say that to my shame. I recognize and admit the brilliance and the beauty of his writing. This has never been something I've been able to really grab hold of. But I still remember, and it came to my mind, I still remember in grade school having our class go to a play on Macbeth. Now, I don't remember much about that day, but I do remember two things. Now, if you know anything about Macbeth, it's about uh, conspiracy, and, and Macbeth and his wife actually uh, murder the king of Scotland, and, and, and they feel guilt for this. So, but I remember at the beginning of the play, they had um, these three witches, and there's like smoke coming up, and it just, I remember that vividly. And then I remember at the end of the play, after... Uh, Macbeth has already committed his murder, and, and he's it's destroyed his life. I, I remember at the very end, Lady Macbeth walking around, looking at her hands, and she cries out to herself, Out, damn spot, out! Because she cannot get rid of the guilt that is upon her for what her and her husband have done. Pretty powerful. Here I am in grade school, and this is like, these are the things I remember, right? Well, the reality is, is we have been corrupted. Some of you were probably even shocked that I used a cuss word, because I don't usually do that in a sermon. So, um, we have been corrupted both by the sins of others and our own sin. And sometimes our hearts tell us that we might be able to be forgiven, 
But we could never get the spot out. We could never actually be holy and blameless and above reproach. But this is exactly what the gospel promises to you. You will one day be presented to the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be holy and blameless and above reproach in his presence. We ended last week in verse 20. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. Dr. Neuheiser said repeatedly that reconciliation is not just a horizontal thing between us. That it's primarily a, a vertical reconciliation between us and God. So in these few short verses, reconciliation, and particularly Christ's ministry of reconciliation, becomes the focus. In the previous verses, it was about his person being in and through and to him are all things. But now it's his mission of reconciliation. His mission of bringing peace between sinners and a holy God. And that's where we pick up today. So if you would, follow along in verses 21 through 23. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by or through his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Verse 21 creates us contrast from what came before. In the previous verses, it was all about Christ, all about Him, all about who He is. And then in verse 21, Paul begins, and you. We've talked about how glorious Christ is, but let's talk about you for a moment. You who once were alienated and hostile in mind and doing evil deeds. So this is a bad situation. A bad trifecta, so to speak. Our alienation, our relationship with God, our hostility of mind, our attitude of heart, and our doing evil deeds, our, our record per se, all of them are terrible. Let's talk about alienation for a moment. Alienation is separation. Being a stranger. So we are alienated from God. That's our condition before Christ. This alienation was expressed vividly in God's casting Adam and Eve out of the garden. 
I'm holy, my presence is holy, you can no longer be with me because you are corrupt, you must leave. The problem with this is that God is not only the source of light, he is also the source of life. So if you are dead in sin, if you are corrupted, the only way that you can have life to somehow be awakened again is to be joined together with God, and yet you're at alienation with Him. You're separated from Him. So later, in the book of Ephesians 4.18, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God. You see, there's only one source of life in the world, and that's God. So to be separated from God, to be alienated from God, you are cut off from the only place where you can get life. It puts us in a dilemma. I need life, so I need to get close to God, but I can't get close to God because I'm alienated from God. That's the situation we find ourselves before Jesus Christ. Secondly, we are hostile in our mind. And when, it, when we talk about mind, the Bible is not simply talking about the intellect. It certainly includes the intellect. But the mind is the entire dispensation, uh, disposition of your soul, of your being. At the very core of who you are is hostility. Well, hostility to who? Hostility to God. The very bent of your soul, the very way in which you perceive the world around you is one of hostility to God. That's hard to accept. I'm a good person. Very few people admit that deep within them is a hostility to God. What I mean is, if you could do it, you would supplant God. If you could take his place, you would. You want God to be your servant rather than to be his. You want to be master of your own life. You don't want to submit to God. God is an enemy to be conquered. Let that sink in a little bit. It's not very pretty news. No person has the ability within himself to overcome this hostility. But this is precisely what the Son of God was sent to do. And I would tell you that overcoming the hostility of a person's mind towards God is by far the most difficult and the greatest miracle that Christ ever does. Changing water to wine, elementary, grade school mathematics. Changing a human heart from being hostile to God to being uh, submissive and obedient and loving of God. That, that's truly a miracle. 
And I will tell you that the only way in which a person's mind can be changed from being hostile to God to being in love with God is by being united to God. You see, because God himself loves himself. He loves who he is. He is the center of all things. And only as you tap into his life will you begin to love God. Thirdly, doing evil deeds. Usually it's our behavior that is what fills us with the most guilt and shame. The older we get, the more we regret those actions that we have done, those thoughts and deeds. And we can be like Lady Macbeth and say, yes, I, I know you've forgiven me, God, but I still feel this stain upon me for what I have done. How can it ever be truly washed away? But is it really important to understand that the evil deeds are just what takes place above ground? We talked about in the Sunday school today the need to pull the weeds out by the roots. Well, changing the behavior is, is important. Yes, it is. And we should be striving to do that our entire lives. But, but changing the alienation, changing the status with God, and fixing the heart is what really needs to be done. You don't really have a problem just with doing a few bad things. You have a problem with being hostile in mind to God. And your real problem is that you have been separated from the life of God. The good news is this. Even though we are prone to underestimate our problem, Jesus has not underestimated our problem. He knew from the beginning what he was up against. Remember, he is the one in whom and through him and to whom are all things. He's up for the task. So let's look precisely about what Christ has done in verse 22. He has now reconciled. And reconciliation primarily has to do with the alienation. The separation that has existed between us and God has been replaced. There is no longer separation. There is peace with God. There is harmony with God. Rather being, than being separated from the life of God, we are brought into union with Christ such that his life is something that we live upon every day moment of every day rather than being under God's curse because of our sin and our corruption our guilt we now are living under God's favor his blessing instead of looking upon you with hostility and revulsion which is what a holy God would do with anybody who is not holy, he, instead of looking upon us with revulsion, he looks upon us with compassion and love and sympathy and favor. And this transformation takes place in a moment. It's not a gradual process. 
One moment you are alienated from God, and the next moment you are transferred into the kingdom of light, of which Christ is head, and God becomes your father. How is it that this reconciliation has occurred? What is the, what is the ground of this? What is, what is the root cause of this reconciliation? And he tells us in two very short phrases, in his body of flesh, by his death, or through his death. Now I'm going to focus on in and through, because if you remember last week, it was in him and through him and to him are all things. So if that's true on all things, it must be true of our reconciliation. It is in him that you are reconciled. It is through him. And through his death that you are reconciled. Let's talk for a moment about his body of flesh. This phrase, it's a, it's a phrase that's only used here in the New Testament. No other place does it talk about this phrase, the body of flesh. I believe what Paul is doing here is he's, he wants to make sure that he distinguishes Christ's physical body the one that walked around on the earth and then was resurrected and is now enthroned in heaven. He wants to make a distinction between that body and you. Because if you remember in, in Colossians 1.18, he is the head of the body, which is you, the church. And so he is the firstborn from among the dead and everything that he might be preeminent. So he's talking you are his body, but he's now saying that reconciliation was worked in the body of his flesh, in his physical body. You see, I still have ringing in my ears Dr. Kelly, my systematic professor. And he would say that salvation was worked for you in Christ's flesh. This is why Jesus in John 6 teaches you must feed upon my flesh and you must drink my blood. Not that we literally do that, but salvation itself was only accomplished through the incarnation, through God becoming a man and then going to the cross. in his body of flesh. So we talked about that, that the creation is originates in Christ. And I would say reconciliation originates in Christ. He is the source. He is, it flows out of him. That's reconciliation. It's, it's first in him and him alone. And then he begins to go on and he says, it is also through him. That it is accomplished. In other words, it is, it is through his activity, through his work, that it is actually accomplished. It begins in him, but then it's through him as well that this work of reconciliation takes place. Faith, and faith alone, brings you into union with Christ and all that he has done. That's why it's so important that you now are his body. That's the image. And I think part of that image is that whatever occurred to Christ while he was here in his flesh, through your union with Christ, 
also occurs with you. So he died to sin. You die to sin. So he's resurrected to life. You're resurrected to life. Everything that happened to him happens to you. Now, first it does this in, in like a declaration, but also in reality it is going to happen as well. And I'll talk about that in a moment. You are trusting in Christ and through that are brought into union with him so that now you are in him and it is through him that you are reconciled to God. Even our faith is something that flows out of Christ. It doesn't originate in you. It is something that it lives in him, and it is a gift that he gives to us. The reformers were very clear that faith is the instrument by which you grab hold of Christ. It is something that you are actively doing, but it, your faith itself is not that which reconciles you to God. The only thing that reconciles you to God is the work of Christ on the cross. God is not happy with you because you're believing. God is not happy with you even because you're repenting of sin. That's not what makes him happy with you. That's not what causes him to look at you as holy and blameless and pure and with above reproach. It is Christ in his death alone on the cross. Faith and repentance are like the first breath of a newborn baby. But the baby is conceived and born prior to that. And our faith in Christ is conceived and born on the cross. And the death of Christ itself removes God's animosity towards you. Reconciliation is in Christ. It is through him. And lastly, and probably most gloriously, it is to him. In my mind, without this, the rest would be meaningless. Paul says that the purpose of our reconciliation, the very reason why his death is so meaningful, is because that reconciliation, that work of his death on the cross, was intended so that he could present you to him. In order to present you before him. Oh yeah, holy and blameless and above reproach. You see, Jesus doesn't reconcile you to keep you in some dark corner of his house. Like he's ashamed of you. Yeah, I died for them, but man, they look pitiful. I'd rather not show anybody else who they are. Nor does he put us on display in a pitiful condition. He doesn't say to the world, oh, look how wonderful I am because I can love and present to myself such wretched people. Of course, the gospel does declare that. 
He presents us to himself holy, blameless, and above reproach. Things that we could only say previously about him. And I know, I know I've talked to you guys. Not all of you in depth, but I've talked to enough of you. You sit around here in the congregation and you think of the person over across the aisle. They're holy and blameless and above reproach, but I'm not. And sometimes you feel like you don't belong. How could someone like me be in this group? Holy? Blameless? Strangely enough, some of the same people that you're thinking that about them, they're probably thinking that about you. You see, because this is the real mystery. How can we, all of us, be presented to God and Him to look upon us and say, holy, blameless, and above reproach? That's the purpose of reconciliation. Now, I know you guys are shocked because 90% of my illustrations are civil war and sports. But here we are. Nathaniel Hawthorne comes to mind. A little book that was written called The Scarlet Letter. I had to look up her name. I don't remember it from when I was a kid. But Hester Prynne. Well, she had committed adultery, had a child out of wedlock. And I don't remember all the details of the story, but I just remember enough as a kid to know that they painted basically a big scarlet A on her chest. And everywhere she went, everything she did, there was the A, adultery. I won't ruin the story for you. There's actually some twists in there that are really good at the end. <clears throat> but here's the deal. When you are presented before Christ, there will not be some big scarlet S on you saying sinner. You will no longer be marked by the sins of your past. You will be presented together with every other person who is in Christ as holy and blameless and above reproach. Often brides will wear white on their wedding day. But if you're on your second or third, fourth marriage, it's kind of etiquette to not wear white. Out of respect. Because you're not as pure. Right? I mean, that's kind of the idea. To wear white would almost be presumptuous. But when it comes to our being presented before Jesus Christ, even the woman at the well who had six husbands will be wearing white. Gleaming white. Holy. Now I get it that we are first declared holy even before we are holy. I get that. But on that day when our sanctification is complete and we are actually glorified in Christ, you will, also, you will be declared holy, but then you will also be in your person holy. You will be holy. Oh, what a day that'll be. 
I was at the tractor show on Friday at Catawba Meadows, and um, I saw a guy that I know, uh, Jason West, and um, he's standing next to a 1951 uh, Ford tractor. And uh, this thing is impeccable. It's beautiful. And, and he started telling me the story of it. He says, oh, yeah, I grew up driving this tractor. And my dad, my granddad, you know, we farmed. This is what we farmed with. And, and you would never have known it. You would have thought that it had just come off the lot. It was so beautiful, completely restored by his dad. Beautiful. Well, it's a little bit like us. We're broken down. We're, we're messed up. We've, we've gone through years of work, and, and, and then all of a sudden, restored to complete mint condition, better than ever. That's us. You see, we will be unblemished, Ephesians 5, 27, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. That's why he reconciled us. And so often we think to ourselves, oh yeah, he's forgiven us, but man, I'm still going to be this broken down person through all, all eternity. I think what's interesting about this, too, is sometimes we think, oh, yeah, the holy and blameless part, that's for the super saints. That's for the Spurgeons, the Calvins, the Luthers. It's not for us. The reality is everyone who is in Christ will be there. Take just a moment to talk about above reproach. To be above reproaches means that someone cannot reproach you. Someone has nothing against you. No evil to say against you. Well, the fact of the matter is we all have people that could say evil against us. We would even testify against ourselves that there's reproach against us. I know I would. But why is it? Why is it that we will be above reproach on that day? Well, Romans 8.33 tells us, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. I can just imagine on that day, Jesus saying, I have nothing against these guys. Who is going to challenge me? And everyone shuts their mouth, including Satan, the great accuser have nothing to say against you. If this is your destiny, then you should strive to be holy and blameless and above reproach. Now, of course, you can't just say, oh yeah, I'm looking forward to that day, but I'm going to live it up now. Of course you should want to be those things now. In fact, it's the hope of that future that will drive you to want to be that. But I am not counting on the ground that I cover as being what will make me holy and blameless and above reproach on that day. It is Christ alone. And this is why Paul says in verse 23, if indeed you continue in the faith. The 
are two ways that you could not continue in the faith. One of them is more of like a subjective thing, and one of them is an objective way. But I think both of them are related to one another, and I want you to hear both of those. You see, faith is not something you do once and then walk away from. Oh, I walked an aisle when I was a Billy Graham crusade, or I, I prayed to receive Christ when I was four years old, or, you know, I, whatever it is. It's not just something you did in your past. It's something that begins in the past and then continues on. And so if it's real faith, if it's, if it's true saving faith, it is persevering faith. It is something that you continue to cling to even when all these other voices tell you not to cling to it. You have to continue believing. Don't let go of Christ. Does our faith sometimes get weak? Do it seems like we're slipping and we cry out, oh, help my unbelief? Yes. But continue to cling to Christ. Secondly, this idea of remaining in the faith or, or continuing, it's not just about your, your action of your heart of trusting. It is also that you're remaining in this faith. Don't supplant the faith that I just taught you that everything is reconciled in Christ and through Christ, don't supplant that with anything else. We live in a world that people are just like, ah, the gospel, who cares about it? I mean, that's just ridiculous. Give me something more. I want something better than what the church has to give. The church has proclaimed it terribly. They're, they're just awful. They haven't done what's right. Look at the bad examples. The gospel does not change. You either continue to cling to the gospel that has been handed down to us on the pages of the New Testament, or you leave that gospel. You make one up of your own devise. And if you leave that gospel, you lose. He says, be stable and steadfast. Don't shift from the hope of the gospel, which you heard and has been proclaimed. It is the hope that you will one day stand before God, holy and blameless and above reproach. Could you think of anything better? Don't leave it. I felt it. Even as a pastor. You see people leaving the faith. You see people saying, oh, I don't like the traditional reformed faith. You know, let me walk away. Let me find something else. And you see them going and you think, well, have I found it? You know, did I get it wrong? There, there is, is no, no one else, else through whom, whom you can, can be reconciled, reconciled to God. To God. And, and to, to whom, whom can present, present you to himself holy and blameless and pure, except for Christ and Christ alone. I want to stand before Jesus. And I know the only way I'm ever going to do that is in Christ. And I would encourage you today to cling to him and never, ever let go of him. He is your hope. Now, now and forevermore. Amen. Amen. This final hymn might seem a little strange. Abide with me.